There's a word that most of us are familiar with that, as I say it, is going to, for some of you, evoke just feelings of pain, and that word is, is betrayal. If you've been alive more than a few years, chances are you have felt some semblance of betrayal. It's unfortunate, but um, most of us in our lives will experience the, the hurt, the pain of, of being betrayed. Um, and, and this is the hard part about being betrayed. It's always by somebody that you know. It's always somebody that's, that's close to you, that really has close access to, to your heart. It's, it's usually a family member or a close friend, a confidant, someone that you've told the, the, uh, um, the, the close, whole, intimate kind of things that you would hope that they would um, use them wisely. Um, it's unfortunate that most of us will be betrayed, but I would encourage you, everybody gets betrayed, particularly because there's sin in the world. None of us has the capacity to, to remain exactly, perfectly loyal to anyone else. We have, uh, as long as we have the, uh, the, a hint of sin in our world, we're going to have betrayal happening to you and those that are around you. Perhaps of all the betrayals that we know, none is as significant um, and shocking as the betrayal of Jesus. And so on a night when, um, I mean, these nights that we've been studying already, this night where Jesus is uh, arrested, he's put forward to to people that he didn't know and had to succumb to uh, the unthinkable as the, the son of God, he was subjected to betrayal. We pay a lot of attention thinking about how Jesus was betrayed by the by the kiss of Judas. But actually, what probably hurt him most was being betrayed by the words of Peter. And that's what we'll look at in our in our text today. So we're going to read together John chapter 18, verse 12 through 27. We'll read these out loud and you can cheat and read along with me as uh, they come up on the screen. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness and bear about the wrong. But if I, if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then said, sent him to be bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, sitting under your word, not over it, Lord. That which means basically we are here as your disciples following you and leaning forward to hear what you would have for us today. As your gathered church, Lord God, we have not forsaken the gathering of ourselves together. And Lord, we look eager to do, to do it all the more as we see the days approaching. And so God, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive 
all that you would have for us. Lord, change us by your gospel. Um, mend us by your spirit. And as we dive into this idea of betrayal and, and more importantly, failure, I pray for those here who have fallen and who who still feel the guilt and shame of of failure. Lord God, that you would heal, that you would come alongside and that you would uh, extend uh, the love that only you as our high priest can do. And pray that in Jesus name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So in our text today, if, if you notice that there's two dramas happening at the same, t- same time, almost simultaneously. Uh, if you read the other, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, they sort of neatly take these events, Jesus trial, Peter's denial and and talk about them coherently, like in one section. John doesn't. John breaks it up. I'm going to I'm going to talk about towards the end of my sermon why I think John sort of interweaves these ideas to these these events together. But for now, um, just know that John breaks it up and the other uh, the other gospel writers do not. Um, I'll address three things uh, that I think the the text here wants us to see. First, Jesus in his trial. Second, Peter's denial. And third, we'll look at how these are all woven together. So let's first look at Jesus in his trial. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So this deserves a little bit of explanation, a little bit of background. Um, First, let me tell you, remind ourselves, the previous scene, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, and he's with his disciples. They had come there because it was a public place. Jesus knew that Judas, the betrayer, would would know this place and would likely bring this horde of, of men, of soldiers, of leaders to this place to detain him and to ultimately arrest him. Uh, We learn from the text in verse 12 that Jesus actually was arrested and and bound. I can't spend a lot of time on there, but but there's some significant things happening here just in in verse 12 in regards to to Jesus. And and John, uh, John isn't interested necessarily in us tying what's going on with Jesus to the Old Testament. Matthew does that. But John does want to convey to us that that Jesus isn't a victim. This this is all planned out. Jesus is sovereign. He really is behind all of these events. Two two specific things. What's interesting to me is given what happened in the scene at the garden. Remember, Jesus spoke these words. I am he and this this band of soldiers and all who are there just fall to the ground under the, the presence and power of God. Isn't it interesting to you that that they have they seem seemingly have no fear in in detaining, arresting and and binding Jesus? I mean, they it's as if they have no idea who he is, that he really is the son of God, that he is God, that he has all power, that he could really just smite all of them without batting an eye. They're unmoved by Jesus, even after experiencing his power. And I can't help but think what Paul says in Corinthians, I think, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. And so the very same thing that happens in this in this setting, there's all these people out here in the world who, who even can, can be in the presence of, and experience the power of God, but still deny him. That happened then, and, and unfortunately, it happens even in, in our day. Jesus being bound is, is really a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. If you think about it, when, when Israel brought the, the sin offering to God, it was always bound. The psalmist said, bring to me the sacrifice and make sure that it's bound. When Abraham brought his son Isaac to Mount Moriah, and they put the wood down. Uh, Abraham bound Isaac, Genesis 22, 9, um, as a sacrifice before, you know, before he was given to take that knife and, and, and slay him. Jesus here is uh, a, a type of Old Testament sin offering. But the focus here is, is on verse 13, and it's these two characters, Annas and, and Caiaphas. Anybody ever, anybody ever study Annas and Caiaphas? Honestly, seriously. Nobody. All right. So me either until I <laughs> until I 
uh, put this sermon together. Uh, this is the best way to describe Annas and Caiaphas. I mean, they're, they're just slightly above the word despicable, uh, but they are rogue leaders. But they are immensely important in terms of this scene here. And I would tell you they are integral to how redemptive history unfolds as Jesus goes to the cross. You take them out and you don't have this this final orchestration of Jesus on the cross. Um, the Gospels narrate two trials for Jesus. There's a, a Roman trial and, and a Jewish trial. There's a, a civic trial and a religious trial. The, uh, each of these trials had uh, three phases to them. And so sometimes you hear me say Jesus underwent six trials. Actually, he went on two, a, a Jewish and a Roman trial. They just had three phases to them. The, the, the Jewish religious trial, they were, they were trying Jesus because they thought he was a blasphemer, that he had called himself God. He had violated their law. And so the, the Jews wanted him to then undergo a, a civic trial. To, the, the, the Jews were under occupation of, of the Romans. Okay, And so the Romans withheld any uh, some of uh, some of uh, their abilities to execute laws, primarily the, the, the ability to execute someone. And so the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus to die. They wanted to get rid of him. But they couldn't do that without the Roman government sending him to trial and actually committing him um, to death. So these two trials, really three parts of it are what we see unfolding here. Jesus is taken to Annas first. And Annas and Caiaphas in the text are both called high priests. We learn from the historian, the ancient historian Josephus, that Annas was high priest from about 6 to 15 A.D. If you recall your Old Testament, priests were appointed uh, in the line of Aaron. They were appointed for life. And what happens in this case, uh, Josephus tells us that Annas became too powerful, so powerful that after the Romans started occupying Jewish territory, they they just cut Annas out. They took him out of power, forcing him not to be the high priest anymore. And instead, they just wanted someone they could control. And so they elected to put in subsequent high priests. And wouldn't you know, they chose uh, Annas's sons. Uh, so in, in 15 A.D. through 13 A.D., the succession of high priests ends up being sons of Annas until we get to the sixth one in 18 A.D. The Romans put Joseph Caiaphas, who was uh, Annas's son-in-law, in power. Now, here's the thing with the Jews. Once a priest, always a priest. The, the priests were in position forever. And so for the Jew, Annas was the official priest because you can't take away. You can't just dismiss him from being the priest. He's appointed by God. But technically, if you're a Roman, they didn't they didn't let Annas do anything. So that's how we have two priests. Uh, the high priest is the top dog. If you're looking at a hierarchy, a, a wiring chart, a, a wire, wire diagram of, of how the pecking order of of Jews are, you got the Jewish people down here at the, at the bottom. You've got scribes, Pharisees. You've got uh, you've got the the priests who serve there. They're the middle management kinds of people. And then at the very top totem pole, you got you got the Sanhedrin, which is uh, 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 kind of a religious political body. They had the most power amongst the Jews. But then on top of all of that, you got the high priest. The high priest is the top dog. You can't get any higher. He's the one that says everything that goes, both politically and, and mostly religiously. And so they take Jesus to the highest authority in in their Jewish nation. And that seems right. I mean, think about it. If because of who Jesus is and because of what they had heard of him, it would make sense that they would just take him to um, to the highest Jewish authority in the land. And what we would expect, if we don't know the end of the story, is that these Jewish leaders, they know the scriptures, they they would meet Jesus, they'd be excited to sort of figure out if all that the, the rumor about him is true. They would interview him, find out he really is the Messiah, and that would be the end of it, right? I mean, we just happily ever after. But those of you that know the end of the story know that's not what happens. We know that from verse 14. Verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die 
for the people. This refers back to what John had written in chapter 11. Uh, Jesus had just resurrected his friend Lazarus from the dead, and everybody had heard about this specter. You got masses of people that are coming to see this Jesus who would raise a man from the dead. And the Sanhedrin, this religious body and all the leaders met because they're freaking out. They're saying, what are we going to do? All the all the Jews are going to Jesus now. And if we let this keep on going, the Roman government is going to come to us and they're going to take away our temple. They're going to take away our land. And, and we'll be all for naught. Our power, our roles, all the everything that we have and all the things that we've worked for for our land will be taken away from us. And in particular, Caiaphas, who already feels threatened by, by Jesus, he speaks up. And John 11, he says this. He says, chill out. This is the deal. It's better that one man die for the people than our whole nation should perish. And of course, Caiaphas was speaking prophetically. He was speaking about this Jesus who wouldn't just die for the for the Jewish people, for the nation. He would end up dying for the sins of the world. Skip down to verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. This is still talking about Annas. And the trial with Annas really is an informal trial. Again, the, the Romans don't consider Jew, uh, Annas the high priest. But all the Jews do. And so the, uh, they take him to who they think is their high priest. He goes to, to Annas first. And it's, uh, it's worth saying that this trial, this informal trial with high priest Annas is a mockery of justice. Annas was just trying to trap Jesus so they could present him to Rome and kill him legally. Uh, Annas' motive was, was envy. Fear of losing his power, of losing his role. And what Jesus does in this little stretch of passage here is he does two things. The first thing he does is he exposes their wickedness. Verse 20. Jesus answered him. I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered in verse 23. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you do? Why do you strike me? There's a lot of things that are, are wrong here. There, Annas and his cohort are violating a lot of Jewish rules that uh, that legally just would not have uh, been right to do. For one thing, Jewish law said a a person on trial couldn't couldn't testify for themselves. There had to be witnesses testifying against them. It's almost like our Fifth Amendment. Your words can't condemn you. Your words, uh, no man could condemn himself by his own words. The 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 proof of the burden of proof was on the government to prove that someone that's supposedly a convict is actually a convict. But there were a couple other rules that Annas and his cohort were were violating. Uh, firstly, Jews couldn't try anybody at night. Guess what time it is? It's like smack dab in the middle of the night. They couldn't strike a prisoner. So it's like when that guy just takes his hand and whaps Jesus across probably his his face in verse 23. He was violating what their law said you could not do. In regards to a prisoner. And then another rule from from the moment someone was being tried to the to the time when they were being executed, there had to be a a stint of at least two whole days. And we know because of New Testament history, from the time they arrested Jesus until the time when he uh, was crucified was less than 24 hours. And so all these uh, were violated. And what Jesus is doing in in his words here is he's exposing uh, their wickedness. Jesus is being arraigned for his supposed crimes. But really what happens is in all of his words, I mean, he's not backing down. He really is arraigning Annas and those who are around him. These injustices were simply a plot to, to kill Jesus. And Jesus knows that they were after him. It was if the, the chief priests and the, the religious leaders had already decided Jesus is going to die. These are just formalities to get us to the point where we're going to put him to death. And so back up in verse 19, when Annas is asking Jesus questions, he really has no legal right 
to do that. This is what Annas wanted. He wanted Jesus to condemn himself by his words. He wanted Jesus to talk about um, the, the heresy of, of saying, I, I'm God or I'm the son of God or any semblance of that so that the Jews could call him a, a, blasphem, a blasphemer. He wanted him to talk about insurrection and of being a rebel so that uh, so that he could in turn take him to Rome and say, look, this guy's not only trying to overthrow our government, he's saying he's the only king that should be worshipped and adored. And that we all know there's no king but Caesar. They wanted Jesus to say, I'm a revolutionary, and that would be their justification, their justification to try him, com- convict him, and ultimately kill him. But what does Jesus do? Jesus speaks the word. And these are the words that Jesus says. He says, I haven't done anything in secret. Basically, this whole thing is a plot without without evidence. And I think what what Jesus does here rightly is he turns the table on Annas and Annas doesn't know what to say. And that's why he gets slapped in verse 23. There's another thing that John focuses on. Not only does he focus on Jesus exposing their wickedness, he focuses on, I think, Jesus' calm demeanor, but also his authority. I mean, do you see Jesus' authority in in these words that he says here? Um, If you recall, John is is trying to show us that Jesus is God. And in the end of, of John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, he says, I've written all these things so that you might know that Jesus is God, is the son of God, and that having known that you would have life in this thing, that you would believe. And so John has shown us in, in multiple instances where Jesus manifests his deity, both in what he does, but also in his words. One particular thing that Jesus does is he says, I am. He says it a whole lot, particularly seven times. If we back up just a few verses to the beginning of chapter 18, Jesus doesn't say, I am anything, but he says, I am he. And he says it in response to this band of soldiers and Judas coming toward him to arrest him. He says, I am he at least three times in the very beginning of of chapter 18. And in these words, what he's doing is he uh, again, it's not directly saying I am God, but he's saying I, I am connecting myself to the ancient God of the of the Bible, of the same God that reveals himself in Exodus three to Moses in the burning bush. That's what he's he's saying. But I think also, as we look at uh, verses 19 to 24, what we see is Jesus in his words isn't necessarily saying I am, but he is uh, emphatically asserting his authority. Let's look at a couple couple uh, things that he says. Verse 20, he says, I have spoken open to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues. I have said nothing in secret, uh, bouncing down to verse 23. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And so Jesus, isn't, I mean, he doesn't feel uh, the need to, to back down. Uh, Jesus is asserting his authority in the face of religion, in the face of false religion. And that's what the Gospels show us. The Gospels uh, present that Jesus is not the kind of teacher that's going to back down to any false religion. Jesus, it's not like he's going to say, all right, so I'm just a teacher of, of, of my religion and you can follow your religion and all of us are going to meet up and, and worship the same God. That's not that. That's not what Jesus proclaims in his life. Jesus comes with the exclusive claim that I am God. And oh, by the way, I am the way, the truth and the life. You can't come to God himself unless you come to me and and through me. That's Jesus exclusive claim. And it's that exclusive claim, unfortunately, that gets him killed. But in this case, verse 24, Annas sends him to Caiaphas. Annas has all that he needs to continue the process, and he sends him on to the next phase of his trial. That's the first thing that the passage tells us. Here's the second thing, and I think this is probably going to be uh, the most impactful for most of us. Peter and his denial, verse 15. So we're backing up in the scripture, looking at the uh, the second, uh, really the, the first passage here. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside of the door, So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Um, Verse 15 says there's this unnamed 
um, disciple. John says another disciple. Most scholars and commentators will say, I'm 80 percent sure this is John. Okay, there's there's seven times actually in the latter parts of John that John feels the need to to write these words. Another disciple did something. Um, And it may be a humble way that he's speaking of himself. There are some that would, would be naysayers and say, how can a mere fisherman have audience with a high priest? And so they say it can't be John. But I would tell you there are two particular times in the latter half of John where John says another disciple that really it can't be anything in context but John himself talking about himself just in a humble kind of a way. Um, who else could it be? Some scholars say it could be Nicodemus. Remember him from John chapter three? Nicodemus is a religious leader. He's a Pharisee. Some say it could be Joseph of Arimathea, who is uh, a prominent man of, of wealth. He's the one that gives the tomb for Jesus burial. And they both show up after the resurrection. Guess what I'm going to say? I'm just going to say it's John. So we can, y'all can believe whatever you want. But just for for sake of language and getting through the passage, we're going to say this. Another disciple is John is John himself. Um, here's the problem I have. I, I can't read what happens to Peter in this in this narrative here without thinking about Peter himself in terms of, I mean, who Peter was. Peter was a big deal. Sure. Peter was a fisherman. Um, he was nothing big in, in terms of being a, a Jew in that day, in that society. But who Peter became, Peter was Jesus closest ally. Uh, when the disciples are named in the Gospels, it's always Peter, James and I mean, the big three, the big three or the big 12. I mean, it's like Peter, James and John. Peter got to see Jesus transfigure himself on a mountain. He got to see Jesus in his glory. It was Peter that although he stepped on his feet a lot of times, it was Peter that Jesus chose to do a lot of things. Peter got revelation about Jesus and God uh, first amongst all those all those other disciples. Think back to John uh, chapter 13. Jesus had just told Peter and the other disciples, check it out. I'm leaving the world uh, and you can't come with me, but you'll come later. And how did Peter respond? Peter simply says, what do you mean I can't go with you? Lord, I'll, I'll follow you. I'll do anything to be around you, even to my death. That's sort of what Peter, Peter's response to Jesus. And so I think in this scene that, that we're about to read here, maybe this is Peter trying to, trying to prove himself. And so here's what's going on. Jesus is in, he's, he's under trial. He's in a courtyard behind, behind a wall of some sort. In in the high priest's castle, John somehow gets in. Peter's on the outside. And I think John or whoever the other disciple is, they're, they're sympathizing, empathizing. Look at old stupid Peter down there. Now I'm inside checking Jesus out. And I think they just let Jesus in. He 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 goes to his servant girl and somehow gets Peter in. Um, no doubt Peter has a, a tremendous desire to be around Jesus. Think about what's going on in the garden. Only by the hair of their chinny chin chin did they not get detained along with Jesus because they were very much rebels along with Jesus. If Jesus was a blasphemer, they were blasphemers, too. And so for Peter to take the risk and just follow along with Jesus was a huge thing. And I, I, I just like to imagine what's going on in Peter's mind. I think he's plotting. I think he's prodding. I think he's trying to say, I mean, what am I going to do? You got Jesus right there. Maybe. OK, so. All right. I'm in. I'm in the courtyard. Maybe I'll just get next. I'll just try to get next to Jesus. I, I mean, in the garden, he just spoke a word and like, man, all these people fell down. Maybe I'll just perhaps Jesus is is conjuring up a miracle. He's going to do something. He's going to say something. Everybody's going to fall down. We get like 10 seconds to get our plan together. I'm going to get my sword out again, chop somebody's ear off. I don't know what Peter was thinking, but whatever it was, Peter was making a bold move. I mean, we can't fault Peter for doing what he was doing. Peter was in it to win it. He wanted to be near Jesus and he was going to do anything to the point of forsaking his own life to do that. But can you imagine the shock that he has in himself when he says what he says next? Verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. 
Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming themselves. I can I can only imagine. After Peter says what he says, that in in fear and shock of him of his own self, he's like, oh, M.G., what in the world did I just say? I can't believe that I said what I, I didn't mean to say it. And so he's going into this, this close hold trial where Jesus is, is being tried and it can't be a pretty thing. And Peter is ready to be as bold as he needs to be to be near Jesus, to perhaps protect Jesus, to fight for Jesus. It's just that Peter's not ready to he's not ready to be engaged by a little servant girl by the door who surprises him with a question that he wasn't ready for. And I would tell you, just reflect a couple seconds. Isn't that how sin works in our lives? I mean, we can guard ourselves for something that's going to happen two weeks from now. You're going to be you're going to be on TDY and you don't like to travel alone. You're going to be away from your family and you're thinking about all the temptations that happen when you're traveling and you're by yourself. It's like I got to I got to I got to somebody's got to come with me. Somebody's got to stay in the room with me. I'm not going to turn the TV on. I'm going to unplug it. I'm not going to go to I'm not going to do the things that I that would bring me in the line of temptation. I actually do that at the grocery store. You know, you know, at the checkout aisle, there's all these naked people in these magazines. It's like, why are you doing that to me? But we can guard ourselves for stuff like that. But unfortunately, y'all, I'm just being real. Y'all can't handle me being real. It's the instantaneous stuff where we're often not ready. I, I'm sure Peter wanted to say this. Yes, I'm a disciple of Jesus. But guess what? Those words didn't come out. It, they, they just didn't come out. Peter never got there. He blew it. And, and here's the thing. Once Peter told that first lie, he had to stick with it. Verse, verse 25. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. He's still warming himself. And so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I just see you in the garden with him? Aren't you the guy that cut my cousin's ear off? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. There's a, there's a lot of lessons that we could learn from, from Peter and, and just how he just messed this thing up. I mean, think about it. Uh, Peter, when they were in the garden, another the other gospels say, Peter, you should have been praying. Jesus said, pray that you won't enter into temptation. What, was, what were they doing? Peter, James, John? Sleeping. <sighs> they were like rangers knocked out in the patrol base. Uh, it, it, was, it was just failed discipleship moment after failed discipleship moment. And here's the thing. Some would question, I mean, why, isn't it crazy that this is even in the Bible? If, if you're a writer of a gospel, would you want yourself to be painted in this light? And this this is the this is the um, this is the the, the the food for all the apologetics against the skeptics who would say the Bible is, is false, who would say, you know what? They just take out all the bad stuff and they embellish the good stuff to make Jesus and his cohort look look good. I mean, what kind of foolishness is that? If you were writing the Bible, would you embarrass yourself like Peter here is embarrassed himself? No. Capital N. N-O. Why is this stuff in here? Well, firstly, it's in here because God wants it in here. But it's in here because we get to identify with 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 Peter in his failure. We get to identify with the soul of Peter because we see ourselves in him. There's a lot of lessons that we could go through. Here, here's the one big lesson that I think is is the one that I'm learning from this text. You got to be ready for the small moments. You got to. My favorite author is Paul, Paul David Tripp. Um, Paul Tripp says, life is lived in little moments. So you only have about five or six big moments in your life. The day you were born, uh, the, uh, the times that you, life changes for you, going to college, starting a career, getting married, uh, having a kid, the loss, the death of someone that you dearly love. Those are the big moments. You might have a couple more a surgery or something. 
Something that changes the directory of your the trajectory trajectory of your life. There aren't any more. The rest are little moments. 365 days a year, 52 weeks, whatever. I mean, all those, you got all those things going on and you only have a few big moments and the rest are small moments of little things happening. Life is lived in the little moment, folks. In your marriage, in your parenting, in your friendships, at your job. It's you doing what you're supposed to do in the little moments that count. And it's the little moments that get us, particularly here, Here's what we learned from Peter. You got to be ready for the small moments, not just to live it and do it right, but to testify, because that's why we were put on this earth. One commentator observes the rest of human history is the ongoing trial of Jesus. In a sense, the verdict is still out and you or I are all witnesses. We're all on the stands. Every day there's a small moment where we either testify or we shrink back and cover up. And the angels All of humanity are watching intently to see how we're going to navigate this stuff. Jesus is still on the stand. We got to be ready for the small moments of life because that's where you live. But you got to be ready not just to live it, but to testify to the glory of God. And so here we got this situation. Peter is hyped up. He wants to do good. Two servant girls trip him up. And it's like it's like us. We think we'll be faithful in the tough moments. But let me think. Let me have you think like this. If someone were to put a gun at your head and demand that you betray Jesus, how do you think you what do you think you would say? How do you think you would react? Would you welcome death in that moment to deny Jesus? Say you're in a faraway country that's persecuted. You're a missionary. Someone knocks on the door and they demand that you denounce Jesus or they're going to cut off some limbs. I mean, what do you do? What do you say? I think we imagine in those epic moments that we would uh, that our, of course, we would be tested, but that, but it would all work out. And I'm not quite sure because Peter was in it. Peter was he, he was close to Jesus. He was devoted to Jesus. He wanted to be near him. Peter wasn't trying to fail Jesus. Our lives are lived in a series of, of small moments, very ordinary moments where we have the opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of God or say nothing at all. Work those settings where you could be ridiculed or even made fun of to be to say or be associated with Jesus, hanging out with your neighbors. I mean, those are the obvious situations. But think about think about it this way. What about opportunities where you're around Christians? You know, sometimes we get around Christians, people who are like us, and we just turn off the Christian in us. It's like, well, we're all Christians. I mean, why do we have to put on that? The, why do we have to, like, st- talk about the Christianese or talk about Jesus? Can't we just, like, put it to the side and just be normal people? You can. But, but why would you give up the opportunity to encourage someone in the, in the God who's like everything to you? Family situations, I, th- I think, I mean, I've just missed a couple of these in this past week. A grandparent taking care of their grandkids, talking about talking to your sibling, siblings over the phone. I mean, isn't it easy, even as Christian people, to leave God out of our conversations sometimes when we have the opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of God, to, not just to non-Christians, but to ourselves? I think it's that back and forth stuff that we wrestle with the most. I mean, Peter, I mean, I I bet he spent a lot of time reflecting on this failure in his life. I bet he spent a lot of time asking himself, I mean, how how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to be ready for the future? And I think that's why he wrote these words in 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I think this is one of the lessons Peter learned. He's like, this is my purpose. God has put me here, hell or high water, to to open my mouth and live out a life where I'm proclaiming the God that I actually say I serve. And, And unfortunately, Peter had to fail to get to that point. I mean, he wrote this at the end of his life when he's about to be crucified upside down, die as a martyr. But he learned a lesson. We're called to be witnesses in the moment by moment opportunities. 
All right, so thirdly, and I got to be go quick here because I'm out of town. How are these scenes woven together? So we've seen Jesus in his trial. We've seen Peter in his in his denial. Here's why John weaves these together. I think John is firstly trying to emphasize Jesus sovereign control. All these things are going on. Jesus is with the high priest um, in the courtyard scene. All that stuff is going on with Peter and the other disciple. What, what do we what does John want us to see? I think he wants us to see that Jesus is supreme. He has all authority. And, and he's not the victim here. He really is orchestrating all this so that he might bring about redemption for those that God has called to himself. More importantly, Jesus is offering himself as the voluntary self-sacrifice for the, the sins of the world. And nothing is going to deter, deter him from that. He is causing all this stuff to happen. Even these betrayals against him to bring that about. But here's the second thing. and I'll be quick here is. Jesus wants to see, I think John wants us to see some comparisons. And the first is with Peter and Jesus. Um, I don't know if you noticed this. In, in the beginning of John 18, we've got Jesus saying, I am, I am, I am he. And in this narrative, uh, verse 12 to 27, we got Peter saying at least two times, I am not. I, I am not. Jesus, I am the king, the light, the resurrection, your life. Peter's like, I'm not any of those. In fact, I failed Jesus as, as much as you can fail anybody. And what this teaches us, I think, is there really is only one chief shepherd. What's a, what's a shepherd? It's someone who leads, feeds, guards, nurtures, protects the flock. You know, there's Peter would become a great man. He would lead the early church. And the Catholic church made him the thing from which their religion is based on. Peter as pope. That's how that's how big Peter was. But as in all the acclaim that Peter would get, there's only one chief shepherd. There's only one shepherd that can guard, nurture, feed, lead you. And his name is Jesus. We take on shepherding responsibilities. Uh, fathers over their families, you and even in work situations, secular and, and Christian. But in our church, department leaders, community group leaders, uh, people who are training for pastor. And sometimes we think that we have to bear the burden of of making people do what they should do, of taking care of them. When I would tell you, this is what we learned from from Peter. No matter how much authority you've given in a religious setting, Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the one that shepherds the sheep. He might use you a little bit, but it's, it's Jesus is the really one, the, the, the one that's 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 causing people to, to grow and to change. He might lean on your shoulders a little bit and entrust people to you, but Jesus is the chief shepherd. Uh, there are some people that I know that they have relied too much on a person to be their chief shepherd, and they have bolted on Jesus and the church because they've been hurt. And so if you're here and you've been burned by church or a leader in the church, I would tell you, don't bail on Jesus and the church because one leader who you saw as a chief shepherd um, did something wrong. Why? Because there's only one chief shepherd. Uh, leaders will come and go, and there are plenty of leaders who will both do what they're supposed to do and, 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 and not do some things that they should and, and really do some bad things. But ultimately, Jeff is the chief shepherd of any church, not Jeff Toomer, not John Scott, not Blake Smith, not Joe Workman, not not any whoever you idolize in this church or in the church that you come that you come from. There are no idols except for Jesus. He's the worldwide idol. And I think Peter learned this lesson. Here's a subset of this one. The mercy of Christ sustains your faith. Some of you in here likely feel like Peter. And so every day you come, I mean, you wake up and you carry some burdens. Perhaps you come to church this morning and you're carrying you're carrying a burden of some way you failed of some way that you really wanted to do right for your for people, for God. And you, you did something you weren't supposed to do. You didn't do something that you should have done. Perhaps you were a leader in some church setting and you absolutely botched it. I mean, you just like messed it up and you can't you can't get over it. You're like a dog with his tail. Stuck underneath his, what do you ever, how do you ever say that? I mean, you, you're just like, I, I can't get from under this. You're totally embarrassed anytime you, you think everybody in the world knows it, knows what you've done. This is what happens in this text. We get some resolve. Thank God we get some resolve. 
in Luke's gospel, Luke records Jesus being transferred from Annas' control to Caiaphas' control. And in Luke 60, 62, we read these words. Do I have that? I can turn to it. These are important, so I'll take my time to get there. Luke 22. I'm almost done, guys. It's the same scene. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And here, here's what happened. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And, rem- and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him today, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And look what Peter did. He went out and wept bitterly. Jesus is coming through the courtyard or somehow Peter sees him. Peter denies him for the third time. And the thing that he absolutely doesn't want to happen happens. Peter is, is completely embarrassed. There's no way he can get from under this. And, and so here's the question. What do you do with failure in your Christian life? I mean, what do you do with, with your failure? And I would tell you what you do with it, whatever you do with it, it is the world of difference. It makes the world of difference with whether you get paralyzed and stay where you are or whether you progress towards some other kind of of glory. And here's the three things that normally happen when we when we're shamed by failure. We conceal it, we try not to feel it, and we don't tell anybody. I'm not gonna tell the church, I'm not gonna tell my friends, I'm not gonna tell the pastor, and ain't nobody gonna know about this. Jesus offers us a better way. And I got one word for it. What's the better way? Repentance. It's it's a long word, but it's a it's a hard word, but it's the word that Jesus offers for us, even when we fail. There's three parts of repentance. There's the first part, confession. First John 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sins, he'll be faithful and just to forgive you and purify you from all unrighteousness. There's just a purity that comes and a releasing of burdens when you can confess primarily to Jesus, but, but prayerfully to someone else that I've just messed up. Secondly, weep. That's what Peter did in Luke 22. Peter went to some alley and he just like wailed like a little girl. I shouldn't have said it like that, but that's, that's what he did. He went and cried, a good cry. Let the emotion out. I mean, Lord, I sinned against you and your word. I think you need that. And thirdly, don't hide it. Bring your failure to your merciful Savior. Why? Because he's your only high priest and he can handle it. And I would encourage some of you, as you're looking back on last year, perhaps there's some things back there, some failures that you haven't resolved yet perhaps you need to do these. Perhaps you need to write it, reflect on it, write these things down. You know, this could have been the end for Peter. I mean, he, he went to the alley and broke down. But, but guess what Jesus does? He does what a great high priest does. He, he resolves it for Peter. John 21, we'll get to this on February 14th. John 21 says, Jesus approached the disciples uh, one of the last times he saw them, but primarily he approached Peter. And he asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? He asked him three times, one for each other times that Peter denied Jesus. And Peter was able to respond, Lord, you know, I love you. And here's the here's what we learn from this. God can restore us even when we fall. He can restore you if, if you're willing. If you're willing to go through some steps of confessing and, and weeping and bringing your sin to your Savior. And what, and what did Peter do? Peter went on to get filled with the Holy Spirit. He preaches at Pentecost. 3,000 people get saved. He becomes the leader of the early church. And, and he is martyred with the, the, the courage of, of, of no one that we've seen on this earth to, to, to live his final days being ruthlessly um, loyal to Jesus, the one that he had betrayed over you know the, the question from a little girl. So the last comparison is simply this, Jesus and Caiaphas. And the question is, who is the high priest who can take care of your shame? And the answer simply is no one but Jesus. Jesus is our true high priest. Read with me. This is Hebrews 7. This is a confession of Jesus as our high priest. Read this out together with me. Read out loud. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, he has no need, like these high priests, to offer sacrifices daily 
first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is not only a high priest, he's our chief shepherd. He leads, he feeds, he guards, he protects us. And I think he does those things best when we fail him. And that's what we see Jesus do in Peter's life. And Peter's not special. He wasn't anybody special, although he would go on to do some extraordinary things. But Peter is, his embarrassment is put in the Bible so that we can identify with it. And so that we know that we have a God who loves us just as much. Jesus is our high priest. He's our chief shepherd. Offer him your guilt and your shame when you fail. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we're thankful for these passages in Scripture where you show us that, that life has difficult moments. And even when we are intending to do good, sometimes we don't do that thing that we want to do. Sometimes we do that thing that we don't want to do. But you don't leave us nor forsake us in those moments. You are a God that, that really is our chief shepherd. You've come to redeem us even in our ugliest moments. And so, God, we look back on our own failures, even as we peer in on Peter in his darkest moment. And we pray for help, help that you would come and help us to um, to have hearts of repentance. Really, repentance is a gift that comes from you. Help us to see where we're going in the wrong direction in life and, and give us the courage to turn around and run to you. I pray that some here would actually weep the, the, the emotion that... Um, that gives you the sense that we're sorry for our sin. And, and Lord, help us all to have courage to come running to you. You are our high priest. You're our, our chief shepherd. We, we can run to you and, and in you there's safety. We pray this in your great name. Amen and amen.